is Mary Beth Gassman, and I am really excited to be here for another episode of the Varying Viewpoints podcast, which is sponsored by the Samuel DeWitt Proctor Institute for Leadership, Equity, and Justice. And as you know, I'm a professor at Rutgers University and also the executive director of the Proctor Institute. And today we're really excited because we have our visiting scholar from South Africa, Nazima Jappi, who is here with us. And we are going to learn so much about her and her research and her uh, career. And I just wanna say welcome, Nazima. Thank you, Mary Beth. Uh, it's wonderful to be here at the Proctor Institute and thank you for inviting me. Um, my name is Nazima Jappi and I'm from the University of Cape Town in South Africa. All right, thank you. And I just want our listeners to know that Nazima is actually here in person with us from South Africa. So we're kind of extra thrilled. Occasionally we do these podcasts and people are not in the same room, but we are actually together looking at each other while we're talking. And so Nazima, I just kind of want to uh, ask a few questions because I'm sure our listeners will be really interested. I'm wondering, can you tell us a little bit more about yourself and in particular, a little bit about your professional journey that led you to being with us here today? Oh, thank you. Um, so let me start by saying that I'm currently the director in the Center for Higher Education um, at the University of Cape Town. But my journey began many, many years ago as a school teacher. And uh, I come from a family that was mainly very professional, also school. My dad was a school teacher. And so I followed that career path for a while and until I became involved in politics. And when I was involved in politics, I then moved into becoming an activist and working in the trade union movement, uh, which for most part of my life uh, was, was my challenge as well uh, to fight the apartheid government and to bring about a new democracy in South Africa. And as time went by, post-1994, the elections came about, I then moved into higher education as a lecturer and then became a dean of students. And for about 15 years, I worked as a dean of students at two institutions, the Durban University of Technology and the University of Witwatersrand. And of course, those were times when we had a lot of student protests and I became very involved in looking at social justice issues and looking at uh, student access and success in, in higher education, and also to make sure that we could get uh, black students into campuses where they were not allowed before. And as you know, during apartheid, as a black student, we were not just allowed to go to any institution. We had mm -hmm. to go to institutions of, which were catered for the various race groups. So, that's where I was. Um, uh, being a dean of students actually made me realize that there were challenges that students were facing. And uh, I, I decided that, you know, the word social justice was also so prominent as the word human rights was. And so it centered around improving lives of people. And that's what I was interested in. And when I saw the the, the Proctor Institute and I read about it and saw the work that you do, Mary Beth, I thought, it was really good for me to come here and, and be physically in the presence of people that are doing this kind of work. And maybe it could help me go back to South Africa and take some of that work with me and collaborate with your institute. 
Oh, I like that. Well, I'm so glad that you decided to reach out. So it's been wonderful. And, you know, for people who might be listening, um, that's how a lot of people become involved with us is that they see something that we're doing and they, it resonates with them. And so then they reach out and then we get to have these great relationships. So it's really wonderful. Uh, I'm also wondering, can you tell us a little bit more about your research interests and your current, maybe some current projects? I know that although you have this sort of illustrious administrative career, you just finished a PhD as well. So I know you finished a dissertation and I guess I'm just kind of what's next? What are you working on? And tell us a bit. Okay. So that's, that's, uh, yeah, the PhD was, was a, a journey that I went through over since 2017. Um, but my, my research areas kind of straddled two areas of the one is to deal with my work. My current work involves assessments. So we do a lot of research in assessments and uh, educational assessments for student access and success. And the other is, of course, my, my own research, my own personal interest in social justice and equity. And my PhD was in leadership for social justice. I was looking at uh, how social justice is advanced or promoted in, in the areas of teaching, research, and also service and policy making areas uh, with the aim of seeking to kind of proactively improve educational leadership uh, as a means of addressing the equity concerns within higher education uh, in South Africa. So I looked at the four higher education institutions, which are very different um, racially uh, when they were you know, uh, conceptualized uh, in, in the Western Cape, for example. Uh, we have a, a very liberal white university, which was the University of Cape Town. We had uh, Afrikaans University, which was the University of Stellenbosch. Then you had the College University, uh, which was the University of the Western Cape. And then you had a, a Technicon, which is now the University of Technology, the mm. Cape Peninsula University of Technology. So they're four very different institutions. And my research was to look at how do the vice chancellors, the equivalent of your presidents, mm -hmm. manage the social justice and equity issues within the institutions wow. and how do they advocate for the underrepresented populations as being educational leaders mm -hmm. um and yeah so that was that was the phd and it i'm, I'm glad to have finished it yeah. <laughs> uh, so that was that was yeah it was good uh the current research that i'm looking at is looking at the perspectives of black female students in in kind of exploring the concepts what they think of social justice equity and inclusion now when we talk of the current population group we're talking about this new generation mm -hmm. of students um, and what is their standpoint what are the approaches that they bring uh, to higher education and to hear their voices mm -hmm. in what is the changing higher education landscape for them um, and how uh, they understand what are these prevailing inequities that we keep talking about. Um, also, you know, to look at um, issues of gender and the approach that will shed some light on the social justice perspective. As you know, uh, gender is still a major issue most parts of the world, but in South mm -hmm. Africa, it's still a, a highly... A controversial area in terms of employment, mm, uh, yeah. getting people, uh, you know, women into employment uh, positions at universities. And of course, I'm looking at how the research will examine this configuration of the transformation that we experience uh, in South Africa. 
Um, and I think it will under, enlighten our understanding of how social justice pedagogy encourages black female students to challenge and transform uh, unequal power relationships with limits opportunities and potentials for these students. Oh, thank you. And I, I mean, I'm so interested that you're, you know, looking at uh, the experiences of, of black women and actually interested in their perspectives on what's going on in the world that they live in, right, within the higher education setting. So I think that's really, really important. And we have so, um, we're, we're really lucky to have so many um, black women in this country who are doing that kind of research and others as well. But it, there really has been this kind of rise in black women scholars doing that work. So I, which I think is incredibly important. Um, so the other thing I was going to say is I've been to all four of those institutions in the Western Cape. Uh, they're all very different, right? Uh, very, very different. Mm -hmm. And and I could definitely see the impact of of South Africa's history when I was on on the various campuses. And I guess one thing I'm curious about is, um, given the the really rich and sometimes brutal uh, history of South Africa, not that we don't have that in the United States, because we certainly do. Um, but I'm wondering what kind of impact has the history, especially of of race played on higher education institutions even up to the current day? Like how are those issues still kind of manifesting in uh, in the current day? Or did the end of apartheid just wipe them out? Oh, that's a great question because the apartheid system really created educational inequalities through uh, overt racist policies. And as you would know, you know, the Bantu Education Act of 1952 actually um, ensured that all Blacks received uh, an education that would limit their educational potential. So the challenges facing South Africa uh, higher education is actually linked to the kind of wider challenges facing South African, you know, the poor economic growth, uh, high youth unemployment rate, and also, you know, the paralyzing effect of uh, poten potential crisis politically uh, you would have heard in the news, uh, you know, the political crisis that South Africa has been going through surrounding the ANC leadership and the government and so on. So the universities have witnessed unprecedented student protests uh, in the past few years. Not that we didn't have it previously. I mean, even, even in 95, 96, we've had a lot of student protests. But these protests actually began as a rise against the establishment and to call for the removals of things like symbols of apartheid, uh, and also look at what is the fee situation for students currently in South Africa. And so you would have heard about the roads must fall and the fees must fall protests 2015, 2016. And you know, it gained uh, momentum in, and turned into national student uprisings in, in, in those two years. Um, also calling for demand of free access and decolonization of uh, 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 higher education. So many universities were forced in a way to, to post 94 to start transforming when the protests were happening and now to also start looking at the ways in which they can uh, move uh, into another phase mm. of transformation. So we had to transform because of the apartheid system mm -hmm. and the apartheid legacy and the apartheid education that we had. And now we have to also look at transformation in the way of decolonizing higher education and looking at 
what are some of these things we can do uh, to ensure that students have a better education and, and the environment and the educational landscape is more suited to the students' needs? Yeah, no, I mean, it's, 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 um, it's so complicated because there were these like prescribed laws that specifically did harm Correct. right to people. And not that, again, not that that didn't happen here. Because I mean, it, it definitely it, it did, right? Yeah. But um, but the the way the undoing of systemic racism is really really tough work, and I'm kind of wondering what kinds of things ha- can can you point to maybe that maybe we can learn from um, on campuses that have taken place that are trying to bring about equity, are trying to enhance diversity, are trying to um, make campuses more inclusion uh, inclusive. Are there specific kinds of things that have happened that you've seen in maybe in your role at being a student or maybe in your work when you were doing your research? Yeah, so I think I think the important thing to understand is that all institutions in the countries had to have redress policies or affirmative action policies, and that those are afforded through constitutional protection. So as you know, South Africa has one of the best constitutions in the world. And how do we actually use that constitutional protection as a mechanism to promote equality uh, mm-hmm. in the country? And so, you know, the South African higher education institutions had to manage uh, diversity in a way where they had to look at a framework. And one of the things in this framework was the issue around organizational culture. And how do universities deal with organizational culture? Mm-hmm. And you know, the historically white, Eurocentric, male-dominated culture <laughs> is still a kind of underlying, and I'm sure you would see that yeah, here in yeah, the United yeah. States as well. Um, and and you know, the institutions of higher education portray this kind of assimilation, uh, or what if you want to call a better word, a melting pot syndrome, where the organization remains the same and the women and the black group, marginalized group. Uh, are expected to change. Mm -hmm. Now, the organization culture is something that will have to change to reflect the diverse culture and, you know, the revised beliefs and value systems. So, for example, at the University of Cape Town, we've had uh, office for the um, equity, diversity, inclusion, the EDI Mm -hmm. office. They do a lot of work, uh, do a lot of reports, and it's, it's actually monitored. So it's not as if you just do a report and it sits on a shelf. Wow. They actually monitor these things and to make sure that equity plays a big part in recruitment. Uh, just earlier on, you and I were talking about staffing and how staff mm-hmm. can remain you know, in, in a certain race group. But how do you actually get people to come in and through a pipeline and become professors uh, in, in a university? Mm-hmm. Um, and so... There's a lot of those kinds of things that have been happening at universities. Um, also, the organizational environment has to change. You know, it's critical that people had to manage this kind of diversity to accommodate the academic and the administrative staff. So there's been a lot of changes in terms of admissions policies, which had to change. Uh, there's been recruitment policies that had to change. Mm-hmm. So all universities and and institutions of higher learning had to go through that process and look we we're not far from you know implementing the entire policy but we are at a stage where you can see the differences in the universities mm. you can see there's been change 
you can see there's a different student population group coming onto campus. Uh, and so, you know, visiting campus rediversity is important for us because we have to put equity and social justice on the agenda. Uh, yeah, I like when you can see things actually happening. So you kind of touched on this, but I'm just wondering if you could expand a little bit if possible. And that is, you mentioned that um, there there are actually these diversity and equity requirements, right, that are enforced. Mm-hmm. And I guess I'm wondering, how has the government um, government's policies and legislation assisted or hindered diversification of your of South Africa's higher education institutions, which, you know, in the US, the federal government doesn't play that big of a role in what happens on college and university campuses a little bit. There's like Title IX around women's issues. But and, and you know, of course, there are some uh, legal statutes that would play a part. But I think in South Africa, it's a little bit more forceful, right? It's a little I might be wrong, but but like what kind of role does the government play and does it ever hinder things? Yeah, so that's a good question, Mary Beth, because firstly, the constitution in South Africa maintains that it's there to create and nurture a non-racial, non-sexist, non-discriminatory society. So what the constitution does, it protects the society, it protects the citizens of South Africa. Mm-hmm. And in order to do that, Uh, the government then came in with different legislations. So one of the legislations was the Labor Relations Act, which which actually deals with uh, provisions of unfair discrimination, mainly in the workplace. And it is very tightly controlled because within that uh, regulation, you also have commissions being set up. So where people who are unfairly discriminated, they can actually go to those commissions and, you know, relate their case to the commissioner and be able to resolve it in some way. So that was the one way of doing it. The other way was to have what we call an Employment Equity Act. And that makes provisions for the eradication of any kind of unfair discrimination as well in hiring, promoting, etc. But it also makes provisions for the establishment by the government of institutions to support and monitor mm-hmm. uh, and enforce planning requirements to resolve disputes and also to make sure that we are recruiting the right people now into the institutions. Mm-hmm. So in the past we had, and I'm not sure if it's still ongoing, the Department of Labor and Department of Higher Education would require each institution to provide three-year rolling plans on and equity plans and so mm. on. And so wow. from that, they could see, for example, in my department, I always have to show how many people of color are employed in my department and given by breakdown of race. Mm-hmm. So it'll be white, African, Indian, and colored. And so that is continually happening all the time. It's, it's, it's there. So we cannot get away from that. Mm-hmm. And in that way, the government monitors. But mm-hmm. the government does not play a direct role in, in telling the institutions where they've gone wrong. And I think that's where we have a little bit of a gap. Mm-hmm. Okay. So we do our side of, you know, uh, making sure we, we monitor and we, we give the, the statistics. But at the end of the day, we also like feedback. You know, and I think that feedback is is not forthcoming as we would like it to be. 
So, you know, the, the South African society and the government very good at writing policies. Mm. But when mm-hmm. it comes to implementation, I think we kind of fall flat in many ways. But I think we, we're going to get there at some point. Yeah, it's funny. I mean, I think, I, I mean, it's actually not funny. Uh, I think in many, just across the board, uh, in many, many countries, right, we're really good at writing policy, or mm. but we're not necessarily that good at implementing Absolutely. it at all. Um, because we don't really lay out strategies for implementing policy very often. So I think that's part of it. Um, so I'm also wondering if you can think about what are maybe some strategies that you recommend, given your experience, your research, in terms of how to um, really foster diversity and equity um, in South Africa or just in general? Mm. I'm wondering what kinds of things that you would recommend. So, So let me talk from an example that I have in my own work, you know, in assessments and how we practice diversification. And this is with a standing commitment to exploring new ideas, uh, growing productive diversity that is with the test and assessments, and actually taking it to the student. So, you know, even in a world where you have uh, students and youth who are so anti-establishment, one has to make sure that you have a brand that is still largely noticeable and that is still largely used. Mm. So in this way, we are able to ensure that our students develop a variety of digital competencies and the transferable skills they have as well as developing and becoming responsible lifelong learners. So we don't just do a pencil and paper test. There's a whole range of things we work with with those students from those schools and especially the students in the rural areas. Mm -hmm. Um, Students that go to Private schools are are well taken care of, but students who are in public rural schools, they need more attention. And we find that currently we have a project with the KwaZulu-Natal Department Mm -hmm. of Education and where we actually go and speak to students in the rural schools and we tell them what is required. So in other words, we focus on student learners. We respect and adjust the, the work that we do for diversity purposes. We also provide a whole lot of context-specific information for those particular students Mm, because they may not have resources to actually be able to either write the test or or understand what the test is about or have computers in their schools, etc. And we also kind of facilitate this meaningful kind of intercultural dialogue Mm -hmm. that we have within those areas. So we have to be adaptable and we have to be flexible. We have to make sure that we are responsive Mm -hmm. Uh, with the evidence that we have to that particular group of students. In my area of assessments, I found that it's best for us to work in that way so that we know we prepare our students for for sort of lifelong learning and to become good citizens. But I must say, Mary Beth, that unfortunately it is difficult because, you know, you can't uh, take this and dismantle it overnight. Yeah. Right? So... Uh, you know, when you have these kind of African universities, which are part of a kind of European colonial mission, Mm -hmm. uh, you have probably heard that before. It's difficult. It's difficult to have this kind of uh, where the majority of those who are were colonized are now the ones who are now ruling. But you also have to have a greater focus that needs to move beyond just inclusion and equity and move towards decolonizing institutional culture, Mm -hmm. you know, 
And so I think the mindsets have to change. How does that happen? How do you decolonize institutional I, culture? You know, it, there needs to be some systemic change that needs to take place and, and a liberation from these sort of confinements of cultural, structural ideologies that we have. And so we need to, as I always say, part of this change and liberation should involve institutions, uh, management, especially our leaders, you know, to create the space for this to happen. And I must say in some institutions it's happening and maybe in others it's not mm -hmm. or it's not happening as fast as it should. Um, so I think the space needs to be created. And you'll always have dissenting voices, I'm right. sure, but somehow the leadership needs to make it happen. Yeah, it's interesting because sometimes I think about like how often in higher education we um, our response to any kind of major change is, well, we don't do it that way, or that's not how we do it here, or it's always been this way. And whereas it's only been that way because people decided that it was going to be that way and right. we, we could easily change it, right? That's There's right. no reason why we can't. Another thing that I'm really curious about is one of the things um, that I read in your research is, you know, you talk about how diversity enriches educational experiences. And I, I guess I'm, I'm just kind of wondering, you've seen colleges and universities change in the midst of the fall of apartheid, right? Mm -hmm. You have like seen that in real time. And I'm wondering how has that diversity enriched these campuses as as they've become more and more diverse. So you have a like you have an institution like uh, Stellenbosch, right? Or or even you know UCT, uh, University of Cape Town, where um, they there there were either Afrikaans whites going to Stellenbosch or like English speaking whites, right, going to um, UCT. But now the student bodies are very different, right? So. Mm -hmm. how, how has that enriched the community? How has that enriched the campuses? That's a very good question. And I think, you know, a lot of us think about that all the time. But South Africa being such a diverse society, we learn from each other's experiences, our beliefs and our perspectives of, of who we are, where we are from. And I think we have to learn from these lessons. So, you know, these are we, we have a very rich, diverse intellectual and social culture in South Africa. And I think that actually allows us to kind of learn from one another. And so when we had to do this, and when you, as you say, you know, post-1994, people had to change. It happened. There was no two ways about it. People did not say, we're not doing it. But in, in terms of how we went about it, people did it differently. Mm -hmm. And so even today, if you look at uh, the corporate sector, mm -hmm. they also, in a way, uh, slow in kind of moving into the diversity and so on. And so I always say, you know, in, if we want to sustain certain things, we're going to have to make those changes. We're going to have to make sure that we move into a, a 21st century, uh, into a, a work setting that brings the individuals from diverse backgrounds and cultures together. Wow. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, well, those are all my questions today. Is there anything else that you wanted to share with us? No, I want to say thank you very much because I think it's very important for us to have this discussion. And I wish we could talk more about things that can happen, uh, you know, in the future. Maybe we can talk about things. But I would imagine that, you know, this pursuit of, of the knowledge that we can share and 
the issues of the transformation that we are going through in South Africa, I think that for me promotes that diversity and that social cohesion that we're always looking for. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. And um, for those listening, I hope that you really enjoyed this and that um, you will join us for future episodes of Varying Viewpoints. Thank you again, Nazima. All right. This thank was you great. So thank much. you so it much. It was wonderful. Thank, thank you. Thank you.